This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hi, welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast. I'm Larry Gifford, a proud member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, founder of the PDAvengers.com, and host of another podcast called When Life Gives You Parkinson's. It's February when love is in the air. Uh, Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Thank you for putting your heart into learning more about living with Parkinson's disease by listening to this episode of the podcast. Relationships and Parkinson's have more in common than you might think. You know, they both require a lot of effort. Both can make you act a little bit awkward at times. And both relationships and Parkinson's are certainly better with a great massage. Parkinson's can and does impact relationships, both physically and emotionally. Uh, It impacts intimacy. Uh, Many reasons why, I mean, mood changes, body image, physical changes, sleep changes. It's a topic that's tough for a lot of couples to discuss and tough to bring up with your doctor. And it's kind of the unspoken conversation, but we're gonna speak about it today. You know, it's important to discuss, you know, your connection and, and it, how all of this, your intimacy and your sex life is related to your own well-being, how much you can do, and, you know, many people who can help. And it's a big part of quality of life. And here to talk about it is somebody that I'm very familiar with, my wife and my care partner, Rebecca Gifford. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Uh, Also, Kat Hill, a person living with Parkinson's, diagnosed in 2016 at the age of 48. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Kat. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. And who's that handsome guy next to you? Well, this is my better half, Ken Hill. He'll really be the star today. Oh, great. Hi, Ken. Hi, Larry. Nice to see you. And uh, and to keep us all out of trouble, we have uh, Dr. Maria Cristina Aspina, uh, movement disorder specialist in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. Hello, doctor. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Kat and uh, and Ken, let's start with you. Uh, How, you know, you've you've had Parkinson's uh, diagnosis since 2016. That's, you know, six years, right? Actually, 2015, Larry, I I wish. How has Parkinson's affected your relationship and the way you relate to one another? Yeah, I think um, it's a a really good question. I think it's a question we may not talk enough about. I think um, for me, I really expected to be the caretaker. You know, I'm a nurse by training and a nurse practitioner and midwife and I spent my my career as a caretaker and then as a mom and as a wife, I fully intended to take that role, um, you know, till death do us part, if you will. We've been married, how long, Ken? 30, almost 32 years it'll 32 be. 32 years next month. Yeah, we were married as infants. I think that's the important part to know. <laughs> it was an arranged marriage from birth. <laughs> Exactly. Um, But I think it really shifted how I viewed myself, and therefore it really impacted how 
the relationship dance went. And I think um, it's taken a lot of time and um, intention to stay close and, um, and to learn how to transition from being what I thought I would be to where I am. So uh, you, it's fair to say that Parkinson's wasn't on your bucket list. No, no, it wasn't on my bucket list. And I don't, I'm pretty sure it wasn't on Ken's either for his wife yeah. to get Parkinson's in her 40s. So, no. no. So, Ken, how's, how do you feel the uh, relationship has evolved since the Parkinson's joined your, uh, your duo and made it a trio? Yeah. Well, the relationships, um, with respect to intimacy, it's changed uh, fairly substantially. Um, and, it's changed. We actually had a similar kind of a change in our intimacy with several years ago when our youngest son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. That was like 20 plus years ago. And I think it's you have these kind of changes when you have a big hit in your family around a health issue. Um, you start, you don't, you you focus less on your own personal intimacy needs and you focus on that other family member. And that's what happened with Katz Parkinson's for me, is that all of my energy went into focusing on what is this and how is it going to impact our life moving forward and didn't even think about intimacy stuff. But subconsciously, that's what goes away initially mm -hmm. because you're, I'm always, I'm just was focused on what is PD? Now, PD is not a new thing for me or Kat, per se, because we've had it in our family. I've had a grandfather. We've had uncles. Uh, my, my father. And my father-in-law, Kat's father as well, um, have, have Parkinson's. So we're familiar with that in the family. But like everything, you just don't expect it to happen to you personally. So the initial, um, with our intimacy, it just kind of like, it was put on pause mm -hmm. and uh, it hasn't been until maybe a few years ago that we've actually kind of kicked it back up into, into what is our normal intimacy patterns mm -hmm. has been. That's great. That's great. Is that because you're now empty nesters? Partly for sure. <laughs> um, but but I, I think our comfort around discussing what Parkinson, you know, that third party in your intimacy, we've, we've gotten to know that third party better, understand it better, um, as much as it can be understood. And, um, and how we are wanting to stay together and stay close, stay intimate, and stay um, around for a long time. And I think that takes intention. And I also, at first, um, Kat didn't start Parkinson's medications right away. And so her symptoms were much more visually present uh, compared to now because her medication has been able to um, basically mask those symptoms. But at first, she was, her tremor was much more prominent visually her feeling her just how she felt was much more visible and emotional in our lives and i was as her husband i was a little afraid to hold her with some of the physical intimacy that i we used to do mm -hmm. and i would be worried about am i hurting cat or 
maybe I don't even want to just let's just put it on pause. Rebecca, I see you nodding. Yeah. <laughs> How could you miss me nodding so much? Yeah, I I that was a that was a big part of of the evolution of our relationship with his body changing so much um and so frequently with the symptoms changing and the offs the offs and the ons. Um I I just didn't know how to get near his body anymore, right? I didn't know, and I, and of course, as you alluded to, you don't want to make anything worse, um, and I don't want to create stress, and I don't want it to be awkward or uncomfortable. This was in the early stages when we weren't as comfortable being awkward and uncomfortable about it and laughing about it and seeing kind of the ridiculousness of what we were being faced with. Um, but yeah, it, it just... Uh, uh, it, I didn't know, I didn't know how to get near his body or because his body wasn't reacting the same way and it didn't function the same way. And so it just became this kind of awkward dance of how do we figure this out? And until we really started talking about it, as you alluded to before, uh, really having those conversations of what can we do? What is important to us? How do we adjust and, and work with what, with our new reality and our new normal here to create a sense of intimacy and closeness. And ultimately that meant we had to expand our idea of what intimacy was, or even more so just rely upon the things that were not the less traditional intimacy. Everybody thinks of intimacy as being sex and um, whether it's penetration or not, it's you know, of being some sort of sexual touch or sexual intimacy. And that certainly is still part of what we do, but prioritizing, we had to prioritize and make more intentional, as was said before, uh, the things that um, that we could do and, and make the things that were less effort, <laughs> um, like just nice touching and kissing and um, conversations when it was a good time and really, you know, that kind of closeness, making that, expanding the idea of what our intimacy and our relationship meant and then making those things priority. And then putting, just understanding there's going to be more effort and intention you have to put on it. It's not as easy as it used to be. It's not as mindless as it used to be because after, you guys know, after so many years of marriage, you just, you don't have to think about it anymore. Things just kind of happen and there's a natural rhythm to your intimacy and your closeness and all of that shifted. So we had to rethink. Dr. Ospina, as a, as a, a movement disorder specialist, I'm, I'm, you know, you're probably always dealing with couples. Uh, how, what kind of issues do you find uh, in the, in your practice and how, how do you, what kind of advice do you give folks? So I think the most important thing is always communication, not only between the patient and the caregiver, but the patient and the doctor. So, you know, if we don't know what's going on at home or in the bedroom, then we can't address it or fix it. And remember, in Parkinson's disease, there's many medicines that we use that can either make this better or worse. Many patients with Parkinson's disease, part of the pre-motor phase of that or the non-motor symptoms of PD are things like anxiety, depression. We, we put you on an antidepressant. Many of those antidepressants that SSRIs cause and orgasmia. And so not only do we put you, you know, on Prozac or something like that, but then we also give you things like dopamine agonist. Those are medicines like primapexil, 
ropinerol and nupro, and those increase your libido. So now we've increased your libido, but none of the plumbing works. And now we've just frustrated you and your care partner. But if we don't know about that, then we can't address it. So if you tell me, hey, you know, I'm having trouble reaching an orgasm, you know, maybe we should switch your Prozac to Wellbutrin or another drug, or, you know, I have a lot of impulse control or hypersexuality, you know, we that's dose dependent. I can lower the dose of your dopamine agonist and not make you as compulsive. So I think communication is key, not only between the patient and the caregiver and the family, because remember, PD is a disease that affects all of the family, not just the Parkinson's patient. It's like the type 1 diabetes, it affects all of the family. And then between you and your doctor, because if we don't know what's causing distress at home, we can't address it and fix it. And then remember that at PD, you know, Many patients are young onset below the age of 50, like cat. But as we grow older, our body changes. And those changes make intercourse more difficult. Patients become postmenopausal, have lower levels of estrogen. Erectile dysfunction also comes with lower levels of testosterone. And we can address those if, if the, the doctor knows about it. Yeah, you had a question. Well, I had a thought. I, I pre-dating Parkinson's, I was in fact diagnosed with depression and started, was on an SSRI for many years. And um, as we all know, we don't really, looking back, was that Parkinson's? Was it something else? But I definitely impacted my ability to enjoy sex um, or, or inorgasmia. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't quite as enjoyable as I would like it to be. And so for me, it was hard to sift out going through the diagnosis process. I was perimenopausal. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was working long hours. Um, I was away from home a lot. We had a child with a chronic illness. There were a lot of factors that were contributing to me not feeling very well. It was very difficult to sift out. I was definitely guilty as a patient of not bringing that up with my provider. But I think there's some area for growth in the exam rooms. I think that that just like we feel sort of awkward maybe talking about sex and sexual and intimacy and all of those pieces, I think some of our providers are not as comfortable either. And I think we can grow in that realm by A, bringing it up as a patient, physicians and, and providers cannot read our minds. And second to that, I'd like this to be an invitation to clinicians to bring it up and ask the questions. Sexual health is really a part of our integral health. And, and many of us are cautious, embarrassed, forget, getting nervous in the exam room and don't bring it up. So I'd love to see it be a more routine part of the dialogue. And I, I get that I'm a little biased. I was a clinician and a nurse practitioner for many years and a midwife talking about reproductive health. So I gained comfort with it. And even I didn't bring it up. So if I'm not bringing it up and I talked about it professionally, I, I imagine there's at least a couple of listeners out there that feel the same way. So we have to own that as um, people with Parkinson's. And I was going to follow up with Dr. Ospita on that. Uh, I was going to ask whose responsibility is it? Like, because I, you know, I've never been asked in, in the office about it. They've, except for on the, on the survey that I get every time I go to the office, but then they don't do anything with the survey as far as following up with, if I say uh, my sexual you know, desires are a one out of five, nobody asks me about that. And I, and I think that's, you know, 
a bad point that happens in the clinic that we just focus on the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And Parkinson's encompasses so many other things other than your primary motor symptoms, tremor, rigidity, slowness of movement, trouble with gait and balance. There's a whole host of non-motor symptoms. And of course, you know, we, we need to think of the whole patient. If I give you levodopa and get rid of your tremor, but you're too depressed to get out of bed, or you're not discussing things with your spouse, you're not having intercourse anymore. And I think, you know, Rebecca is really good. We need to expand our idea of what is intimacy and expand that to it's just not sexual intercourse, it's just not penetration. We should really call it sort of outer course. So that includes everything from hand holding to massage to, you know, using, um, sex toys or, you know, oral stimulation, those sorts of things. So I think what happens in the clinic is that the provider is very focused on your motor symptoms, that UPDRS, you know, are you getting up and walking? Are you falling? How's the swallowing? How's the speech? And we're forgetting about the rest of the person. And so I think both the healthcare team and the patient need to put that more front and center and think of you more as an integrative, you know, that mind-body connection so that we can think of your overall health. But of course, I always want patients to, you know, write down all your questions so that way you don't forget your questions and that don't be afraid to add, you know, the sex part in there because there's many things that we can do. We know that you can have anorgasmia with SSRIs. We can fix that. We know that we can make you hypersexual with high doses of dopamine agonists. We can fix that. Uh, but you just need to bring it up. If you're if your provider doesn't have enough time in their 20 minute visit, you know, advocate for yourself and say, hey, yeah, I know my tremor's a lot better and I haven't had any falls in the last three months, but I can't reach orgasm. Maybe I should switch Prozac to Wellbutrin. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, and I you know, Kat, you're right. It's hard to bring it up in the office. And I, I, I like my neurologist. We have a great relationship, but I couldn't bring it up. So I actually emailed him after my appointment and said, hey, can I get some Viagra? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll phone it in. So that's one way you can do it. Um, but uh, Rebecca and, and Kat and, and Ken and, and Dr. Espina, I'm, the people that I admire the most are the people that are still dating and have Parkinson's disease. The single folk. We're so lucky that we have partners that we've been with for decades. But uh, I just think I don't know how they do it. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on how they go about, uh, you know, having a sex life and, and dating and all that stuff with Parkinson's? And when do you tell the person you're dating you have something and it's hard thoughts on that before Kat started medications, you know, her PD was very visible, lots of tremor. And remember that mind-body connection, the more stress or arousal your body has, the more the tremor, dyskinesia, dystonia is going to come out. Um, and so that, especially if you don't know, you haven't known your partner for 10, 20, 30 years, you're out there dating, that can be quite inhibiting that, you know, you've got these body issues, you're worried about your tremor, you're worried about the cramping in the foot, you're worried about drooling maybe, or the skin. Um, skin changes. And so again, it's always communication. You know, I would lead right off the bat. I have Parkinson's disease. So it's just not this thing that you're hiding in the corner, um, that sort of thing. And, um, and, but I wouldn't, you know, our goal and our job is to get you out there and living a full life. And so just because you have a chronic disease like Parkinson's disease doesn't mean that you have to stop dating and not, you know, go on any dates anymore. Uh, and then, and one thing, just as a doctor, I'd like to plug is that remember that you, you can still get STIs, uh, even if you're postmenopausal, you don't have to worry about pregnancy anymore. Uh, those infections are still out there. And so you want to have safe sex, especially if you, you know, don't know your partner that well. 
It's not a monogamous relationship. Pat, did you want to add to that? Well, you know, I just, I want to come back to the, kind of the foundation of communication. I think, um, yes, I feel so blessed that I have Ken in my life. And, um, and, and I really do have a lot of respect and care and love for those that are out in the dating scene, whether they have Parkinson's or not right now in this world. But, but I think as you develop intimacy, communication is such a key part of that. Um, and, I, and I think that developing a relationship is a process of developing intimacy on many levels, the physical being one of those. And so I think that being able to uh, gain confidence in the body that is changing, everybody's body's changing, everybody's body's aging, right? We're never going to be as young as we are right this second. Aren't I sunshine, right? So, but, but, but we get wiser. Yeah, so that's going to happen with who you're dating as well. And so maybe my, my um, I like to call it my quirkiness or, you know, my, my bounciness is what I would call my tremor a lot, that I'm just showing a lot of my emotion on the outside. And maybe that's a good thing for a partner. They know when I'm a little nervous or when I'm um, excited and, um, and, but, but it's about getting comfortable with who you are as a human being and then a human being with Parkinson's. Well, in communication, and I love that that's come up so much because of course it's important to, to relationships and to this particular topic and keeping that open communication, honest communication, talking, having the tough talks, but we all know that communications is challenged with Parkinson's in the relationship for anybody with Parkinson's, anybody speaking to a person or trying to communicate on all levels with a person with Parkinson's. And our communication style has had to change. It was so effortless and and um, easy and really kind of how we built our relationship initially because we were long distance for a while in our in our early relationship. And so we it was so easy to rely upon that. And then the Parkinson's comes in and everything has to become more intentional. Everything has to become more mindful and less require more more effort and thought and and all the things that come with Parkinson's. And so having these kinds of conversations about intimacy become that much harder, right? You have to find the right time. They have to be on. It can't be too late in the day. Everybody needs to be in a good mood. You've got space to have a nice private conversation where nobody's coming into the room and you don't have other meetings that you have to get to and, and all of that stuff. It just becomes the window for communication, intimate or not. <laughs> it becomes smaller all the time. Well, and, and part of that is, you know, we're, like we're not sleeping in the same bed anymore because of some of my symptoms and, 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 and I have active, you know, dreaming and I don't want to elbow you in the back anymore. So, you know, we've, so there's fewer opportunities. It only happened once. Yeah. But there's fewer opportunities for that, for those conversations. We used to have that sort of the going to sleep conversations and we don't have those anymore. So we have to find other times to do that. Speaking of timing of it all that made me think of one, one, th I've been working from home since this pandemic started. I'm one of the fortunate people that are able to work from home and continue working, but it's also freed up our time for our best time of day for physical intimacy and intercourse is in the middle of the day. So I'm, you know, in some ways it's been, that's opened a door for us. Um, to be more physically intimate when we want to, and we don't have that. Oh, we're both at the office or we're both, you know, in different parts of the, of the city. 
Um, but also, I wanted to share that in some ways, this has been an, the cat's Parkinson's and our adjustment for our intimacy, it's, it's given me an opportunity, and I think cat also, to, to focus on some of more of our more emotional intimacy needs and getting a lot more enjoyment out of that than we used to. Uh, because we are so busy with other parts of our lives. And in some ways, the Parkinson's, for Parkinson's, has given us an opportunity to focus on that and really work on identifying the emotional, intimate parts of our lives that we used to enjoy. And now that we're able to spend more time doing some of those things. Like embracing the evolution of it, right? It's different now. So let's grieve the loss of what we can't do anymore or the things that aren't or become a lot more effortful and move forward. And then there some, as you're alluding to, that's, there are some new ways to connect and that's kind of exciting, right? It's the, it's an, it, it makes the, it makes the, the, um, the, the losses more palatable, but also it's about embracing the new and moving forward. Yeah. And then there's the unknown, which is like, we, once you find your balance and then something else happens and you got to refind your balance. <laughs> Let's em- embrace the uncertainty. <laughs> Easier said than done. Dr. Espina, I, I brought it up earlier. You know, there's a lot of sleep problems with folks with PD. What are some of the different ways Parkinson's can affect sleep? Yeah, so sleep is part of those, what we put we put in the non-motor bucket. And as you were talking about those active dreaming or REM sleep behavior disorder, many times that's present many years and sometimes decades before your diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And so what that is when you go to sleep and you go to REM sleep, which is usually, it's your dream sleep, usually you're, you're paralyzed during REM. You're atonic, so you, that you don't act out your dreams. But in Parkinson's dis- disease, that atonia doesn't take place. You're no longer paralyzed during REM and so you can act out your dreams. So you can talk, yell, scream, kick and punch. And it turns out that during REM, that's when your brain is practicing getting away from a threat. And so that's why these dreams tend to be very active, lots of screaming and kicking and punching, because you're trying to get away from a threat. You're practicing that in your sleep. And so that happens many years, sometimes decades before your diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. But as the disease advances, like you said, it leads to couples either moving to separate beds or sometimes to separate rooms. And then that can affect the intimacy. As you said, you're no longer in the same room in the same bed to talk about what happened during your day, you know, what you're thinking about to give you that, you know, if you both wake up at two in the morning, um, something could happen. And so RBD is one of the one of the most common things that happens during during sleep or interrupts sleep in Parkinson's disease. There's many other things like sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is very common in Parkinson's disease. Many times patients have to use a CPAP machine. Again, you know, it's like people feel like, oh, I have this octopus stuck to my head. It's not very sexy. That doesn't lead to a lot of intimacy. But as Kat said, you know, maybe you can find times for intimacy. One of the you know, silver linings of this pandemic is that now you could work from home and then have intimacy in the middle of the day instead of uh, at night. And then I just want to put a plug for sleep. 
because sleep is really, really important, especially in Parkinson's disease. You know, why do we spend a third of our life asleep? It must be doing something super important for our, our bodies. And so sleep is when we, our learning and memory take place. So your short-term memory encodes into long-term memory. And then it's the house cleaning uh, part of the brain. So that's when your brain does all of its house cleaning. It cleans up all that cellular debris that happens in the brain. It cleans it all out. And we know in Parkinson's disease, that's one of the problems that leads to cell death. You have this misfolded protein called alpha-synuclein that clogs up the cell and it causes the Lewy bodies and then the cell dies. But if we get more stage three and four deep sleep, then there's more of an opportunity for that house cleaning to take place. Many times you'll have sleep fragmentation. So many PD patients get distressed like, oh, I can't sleep eight hours in a row anymore. That's okay. We can sleep a chunk at night and then you can take a, a nap in the day. That's fine. We just want to get enough sleep throughout the 24 hour period. Well, you know, speaking of uh, REM sleep behavior disorder, the foundation's landmark study, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, PPMI, is recruiting people with RBD. Now, the study aims to better understand and measure Parkinson's disease, including before movement symptoms begin. Uh, this information could lead to new treatments. And through PPMI, scientists also could learn more about the biology and experience of REM sleep behavior disorder. Learn more at michaeljfox.org slash dreams. So we know that many patients with RBD go on to progress to a Parkinson's disease or an alpha-synucleopathy. So we want to pick up these patients early on so that we can stop the progression of PD when it's just constipation, anosmia, you're losing your sense of smell, and acting out your dreams, that you never develop the neurologic point, the, the motor symptoms of PD and all of the disability that comes with the on and off. And so many patients say, well, you know, what's the cure for PD? You know, are we going to replace these cells? No, the cure for PD is going to come that we're going to stop the progression of, pre, of PD in the premotor stage. So, you know, just like you get a colonoscopy and a mammogram when you're 50 years old, patients who are at risk have RBD, like had a first degree relative with Parkinson's disease, constipation, anosmia history of anxiety, depression, gets a DAT scan, and then we'll use compound X, whatever it turns out to be, to stop the progression of that alpha-synuclein migrating up into the brain. Let's stock up on that complex X or whatever. Right now, we know the only thing we know is that exercise is the closest thing we have to that compound X. Great. Uh, hey, Kat, um, I don't know about you, but Parkinson's uh, makes me moody at times. It uh, makes me angrier at times. It makes me apathetic at times, which none of those things really are too sexy for my wife. Well, I wish I could say that I don't have a single one of those, Larry, but that would be absolutely <laughs> not true. And my husband's right here. So <laughs> um, I think that the intensity of emotions that we have swing more. I, I will say that um, uh, since being diagnosed and since leaving my very intense sleep interrupting job, um, I, I'm able to do take care of myself more and therefore my emotions feel more regulated. Um, and I realize that that's a real privilege um, and a loss. I really missed catching babies at the hospital. But um, but but I I have realized that so much of that lifestyle contributed to probably the exacerbation of my symptoms that that by getting better sleep 
by exercising regularly, by eating more healthy, by being an empty nester. There's hope, you guys. But <laughs> just in terms of being able to regulate what, what helps me feel good, that helps. Um, but definitely, my emotions run high. I get anxious very quickly. Well, and to add to the sexy factor, I do, I have severe sleep apnea. So, so I may be shaky, emotional, angry, cranky, and wear, you know, my Darth Vader mask at night. (laughs) I'm the Rebecca, you know about the sexy Darth Vader mask. It's a turn on, right? I do. I, you know, I'm just used to it now. It's just your nighttime Larry self. (laughs) It has has an extra component. (laughs) How how do you think my mood uh, swings? Because like I was a kind of even killed guy before Parkinson's. Yes, you were not an anxious person. You didn't have a lot of mood swings. You're pretty even keel. Your moods were weeks long, <laughs> and that's that's quite quite different now. Um, and another thing to consider when you're considering communication and all the things that are necessary to to maintain that close sense of closeness. And it took. A bit. We're only what five years into our journey after diagnosis, so we're we're early. Um, but it took it took a little bit. We're still working on it. We will continue have to have to work on it. Um, learning to kind of manage that, and and I had to adjust my reactions because I was not used to that. I was not used to angry Larry. I was not used to anxious Larry. Um, so and didn't know how to take it at first, even though I understood it was part of the Parkinson's. Uh, just it would just didn't compute, right? So I had to I had to build that muscle of patience and recognizing what's happening and how do we what are the ways that we have what are the tools we have to kind of manage that what tools do I have to make sure that I don't overreact all of that. How about you, Ken? Yeah, uh, that's really interesting that that this topic has been brought was brought up because I have seen a, a change in Cat becoming more. Uh, quick to change in her personality and getting angry quick quicker uh mood swings more rapidly if you were to look at us 10 15 years ago we would be the opposite i was the one having the drastic mood changes and mood swings and uh now it's 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 kind of it's reversed and so there are times where i just have to like go okay let me just let's back off a little bit, let let the situation calm down. And I've had to be able to like, when I've seen some of these mood changes, I, I have to take a breath and take a pause and kind of just wait and see if the, where this thing is going to go. So, I mean, let's explain wh- why that happens in Parkinson's disease. So I think both patients and providers are still stuck and PD is a motor symptom. It's just the tremor, the rigidity. But Parkinson's has all these non-motor symptoms. And part of that is the anxiety and depression that comes with that, those mood swings. And so as your levels of dopamine fluctuate throughout the day, when your dopamine level is low and the tremor and rigidity is coming back, many times the very first sign of an off or your low level of dopamine is not a motor symptom like tremor or rigidity. It's a non-motor symptom like anxiety. Some people have a frank panic attack. And so that anxiety comes up and that's your first symptom of off. 
and then the tremor comes. And so if you recognize that, that these are fluctuations of the levodopa throughout the day, then we can add longer acting forms of dopamine during the day. And then remember that when you have low levels of dopamine, that leads to low levels of norepinephrine and serotonin, which is what causes the anxiety and the depression and the lack of emotional re resilience. So if you have low levels of serotonin, you're less likely to bounce back from a stressor. You're more irritable that fuse is really really short so you you know go go get angry right away so it's the reason we add in an ssri something that's going to increase serotonin or epinephrine to we increase that fuse make you more emotionally resilient like you felt uh, you know five years ago so that if airlines cancels your flight or you know the realtor didn't show up it doesn't seem like such a big deal and then we need to recognize that that anxiety may be, may be the very first sign of wearing off before the tremor comes. And that's why there could be lots of fluctuations throughout the day in the, in the sort of mood symptoms of a PD patient. And once you understand that, then the caregiver doesn't take it as personally like, oh my gosh, they're always snapping at me. You know, she yeah. was never like that before. And then you understand that in the context of the disease, and then you can come in and tell your healthcare team about it, and then they can change your medicines to make those fluctuations less throughout the day. So you're more even keeled both motor-wise and non-motor-wise emotionally as well. This is a fascinating topic. If folks want to uh, learn more about how mood changes are happening in Parkinson's, you can check out the replay of a webinar on mood changes in aging and Parkinson's on February 17th at michaeljfox.org slash webinars. All right, this is a, we're going to do a, a round, round robin here. Everybody gets a chance to contribute. Um, first, we'll start with uh, Ken, and then uh, we'll, we'll Kat, and then Rebecca, and then I have a different question for you, Dr. Espina. Um, how do you continue to nurture the connection, closeness, and intimacy as the Parkinson's change? For me, it, and I think for us, it's carving the time out. It's, it's actually making this a priority in our lives and making sure we have at least some time during the week that we can do something intimate uh, and tune in to drop everything else that's going on around our lives and just focus on us not having a specific we don't have to have a specific plan it's not like a date night in the calendar but it's just making sure that we we, we make that a priority is our intimacy and, and I think I would say I like how um, before my, I, I get Botox for dystonia in my hands every 12 weeks. And we, before that appointment, check in about where I am with symptoms, how we feel it's going. And that helps us because it's, um, we know it's coming up. It's not in the moment like, gosh, you're angry more often or your medicine isn't working or whatever, but we're able to connect about it. And we know that we have a, a set aside time to talk about how is the progression. Rebecca? Uh, along with enthusiastically agreeing with what's already been said, um, I, I think that part of those conversations um, for, for you and me, Larry, are also just kind of renewing that intention um, and that we have that trust that we, are, that we want to work on it. Kind of renewing the vows in a way and renewing that commitment because things are changing so fast just kind of checking in with each other along, you know, as part of that check-in that, that you mentioned, it's, it's just kind of saying, we're still in this, right? Okay, so let's talk about how to move forward. What needs to shift? All of that. So 
of course, communication and then, and then just kind of having that trust that you know you're in it together and that, and that you don't need to worry about that piece of it. And then you can move forward and you can say the awkward things and be brutally honest about something or, right, and express your needs and then, right, and then, and then make a plan. Yeah. And I think for me, uh, it's, it's one of the things that's really helped is um, I don't notice when I'm not like contributing at the level I should at the house with the kid, with the dinners, with the stuff. And so we, we have a whiteboard now in the kitchen so that we have a list so I can look at that to see if anything's going on. Uh, you know, we, we have certain, you know, Rebecca's really good at saying, Hey, I, I, can you help out here? Can you do this? Can you do this? Oftentimes she has to ask me three times because I forget. But uh, it's 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 that communication and, and not being a it's it's not nagging. It is it, I need that. Uh, I I need that. Uh, just whether it's a, a visual reminder or an audio reminder, because I can get lost quickly, especially towards the end of the day. And it's you know, I, and I don't want to escape the family after having worked all day. I want I actually I'm working so I can be with the family. So, you know, so we have to make those things priority, like Ken said. Uh, Dr. Espino, what kind of advice would you give people to, to, to consider as they're trying to nurture their relationships? So as Rebecca said, you know, this is a disease that's changing from day to day, from hour to hour as, as the disease advances, it's a new person. And so the better you communicate about that, the better you understand the disease and the medicines and how they work and how you fit into that context, the easier it is to sort of roll with it and, and go with the punches. So I think communication between you and the care partner is key and between you and your healthcare team. I want to thank you all. This is an amazing conversation. We could probably go on for another three hours. Kat and Ken and Beck and, and Dr. Espina, thank you for being here. Thank Thanks, you, Larry, for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, Larry. Pleasure. I want to remind you that there are many resources available uh, for you to find out more about how Parkinson's can affect relationships. There's the Ask the MD videos, there's blogs, Third Thursday webinars, all these topics and more at uh, michaeljfox.org. Our landmark Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative is open to anyone over the age of 18 in the U.S. Join the study that could change everything at michaeljfox.org slash podcast dash PPMI. There will be a link in the show notes. Please rate and review the podcast. It's really a great way to spread the word about Parkinson's disease, raise the awareness, and, you know, share it with your friends. Personal recommendations are always the best. Thank you for listening. On behalf of our guests today and everyone at the Michael J. Fox Foundation who is here until Parkinson's isn't, I'm Larry Gifford. We'll talk to you next time. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.